This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your extension crop report. Soil pH is easy to understand as far as utility goes, but not so easy to understand as far as the chemistry goes. However, it is important to understand some basics of soil pH chemistry and its effects on nutrients if we are to understand soil fertility. pH, after all, is the controller of nearly every soil compound and therefore the availability of elements to plant roots. For those of you that aren't fond of chemistry, don't check out yet. This will be basic. No need to learn chemical reactions or compound terminology. First off, what is pH? Acidic pH, or anything below 7, is simply more free hydrogen in the soil. In basic pH, anything above 7 is more hydroxide in the soil. Hydroxide being hydrogen and oxygen stuck together. Free hydrogen and free hydroxide are very sticky and they will stick to all kinds of elements. Aluminum and hydroxide are a classic example. At a pH of 4.5, aluminum is free, it's by itself. And as pH increases, aluminum will find more hydroxide, up to 4, to stick to itself. Free aluminum is toxic to plants, while aluminum with 4 hydroxides is mostly unavailable to plants. pH is also on a log scale. This simply means that at a pH of 5, there are 10 times more hydrogens in the soil than a pH of 6, which has 10 times more hydrogens than a pH of 7. Another thing to understand is that plants only absorb nutrients in certain compounds. Plants absorb phosphorus with one or two hydrogens, but not three hydrogens. However, before it finds that third hydrogen, it will find aluminum first. Aluminum phosphorus compounds are also unavailable to plants, and this reaction starts when pHs get below 6. This is why acidic soil can have more phosphorus in solution, yet still be less available to plants. Every plant nutrient is altered by soil pH, which can either make them more or less available. Liming a soil increases the pH and can actually act as a fertilizer by making those nutrients available to the plants. However, there are some nutrients that our soils don't naturally have enough of. Most, however, it's just a matter of pH. Lime is calcium carbonate or magnesium carbonate. The carbonate is what attaches onto the hydrogens and turns them into water. This increases the pH by taking the free hydrogen out of the soil. The calcium and the magnesium is mostly just a carrier because our soils have plenty of both nutrients. There is no good way to intentionally acidify a soil that is too basic, at least on a field scale. However, we unintentionally acidify a soil by adding ammonia compounds. Ammonia being a nitrogen with four hydrogens. In the end, that is the balance. We add hydrogen with ammonia for the nitrogen and we take that hydrogen out of the soil with lime. All the while, soil nutrients are being absorbed and compounded back and forth as we try to strike the ideal, slightly acidic pH, somewhere between 6.1 to 7.0. That is where most soil nutrients are in the form that is plant available. However, don't think that plants are merely on the sideline to all this. Plants, fungus, and microbes have special abilities to alter some soil nutrients themselves to make them available. This means that a balanced pH soil isn't enough. It takes a healthy root system and microbial active soil to make crops grow. If you have any questions about soil fertility, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat Extension District. At the risk of becoming lost in a psychological debate, I ask, what is a weed? Some would say a dandelion or Bermuda grass are weeds, since those plants can be a pain in the garden. 
but dandelions are edible, and Bermuda grass is great forage for livestock. So, it's all about perspective. Is the plant in a good location? My personal go-to explanation of a weed is anything that's undesirable. Control of a plant can be difficult, depending on the plant. Weed control is necessary when undesirable plants are causing a decrease in productivity for desirable forages. The plants to be controlled may be less tasty to livestock, have low nutrient quality, or have potential for toxicity issues. Plants that have invasive characteristics should also be controlled. The only way to know if your pasture has a problem is to get out there and look around. Pairing your observations with your production goals, you'll find what plants need to be controlled and which plants need to be encouraged. For example, an operations production goal is to grow feeder cattle from 350 pounds to 575 pounds in three months. After taking a look at the pasture condition, the current plants are fescue, Bermuda, milkweed, a yellow something, cheat, blackberry, a white something. Now, the producer needs to identify the unknown plants and understand the natural growing seasons of each plant. After doing the research, this producer found that the current undesirable plant population still allows for enough forage to grow for the feeder cattle to reach the goal weight in the time frame. There are three broad categories for weed control, cultural, mechanical, and chemical. Cultural practices are based on management, stocking rates, grazing seasons, species of livestock. Mechanical practices generally involve sweat, manual removal of a plant with a hoe or a shovel, prescribed fire, brush hog, or a bulldozer. Chemical practices involve herbicide application to problem plants. Each category requires plant knowledge of growth season and invasive tendencies, as well as effective control measures. When choosing to control undesirable plants with an herbicide, be sure to read the label. Some chemicals may be effective on certain species up to a specific height, but it's no longer effective as the plant matures. Time of the year and daily weather conditions will impact the effectiveness of herbicide also. Consider non-target plants that are in range of the undesirable plant. Droplets can carry with the breeze, causing drift problems. Calibrate the sprayer to deliver the correct amount of herbicide to the plant part. In summary, knowing your production goals for a pasture and putting your shadow out there will give you an idea of what actions are needed to keep pastures in their best condition. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office. 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the Hayes State Research and Extension Wildcat District, serving Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your Hayes State Research and Extension report. If you are looking into what type of animals you could raise if you have a limited amount of acres, you may have considered raising rabbits, or more specifically, meat rabbits as an option. Raising rabbits is fairly easy and the cost to start raising them is relatively low. If you are considering raising meat rabbits, you will first want to determine your goals. Will you be raising rabbits only for your family's consumption, or do you also want to sell rabbits? How many rabbits will you be able to care for? 
and how many litters do you want to have a year? After you have determined the goals and answered these questions and are ready to buy rabbits, you will need to know what characteristics determine a good rabbit and which breed of rabbit you will want to raise. There are three main characteristics to consider when determining if the rabbit has good conformation and will fit your needs. First, they need to grow quickly and efficiently. Second, they need to be good mothers. Third, and lastly, they need to have a good meat-to-bone ratio and grow to the ideal size. Typically, rabbits raised for meat should weigh between 9 and 12 pounds when grown. The two breeds most commonly raised for meat production are the Californian and the New Zealand White. However, there are many other breeds of rabbits that can be raised for meat as well. When figuring out what type of hutch to have for your rabbits, make sure you will be able to clean the hutch easily and that the hutch can be placed in an area where it will be out of direct sunlight in the summer to stay cooler, but also out of the direct wind to stay warmer during the winter. If you are building your own hutch, it is important to note that when constructing your growing cages, be sure the holes in the wire covering the floor are not too large, as the baby's rabbit's feet may fall through and become stuck or even broken if the holes in the wire are too large. The ideal wire to use would be half-inch mesh, 19-gauge galvanized hardware cloth. Once you have the type of rabbit you are going to raise and where you will house the rabbit figured out, the next step is to decide what you will feed your rabbits. Feeding rabbits can be very cost-effective or expensive depending on what you choose to feed your rabbits. In addition to feeding rabbits a commercial rabbit feed, you can also feed adult rabbits certain vegetables and fruit. Some fruit and vegetables you can feed adult rabbits include carrots, apples, beets, turnips, lettuce leaves, and potato peelings. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Horde Report. With Valentine's Day passing recently, roses are the theme of the week. Rose bushes are typically hybrids between multiple species. This is for several reasons, but the primary reason is disease resistance. Powdery mildew can ravage species roses in wetter environments, and hybrid roses will have at least a little resistance to this disease. Hybrid roses are often labeled as tea roses in garden centers. These will bloom multiple times during the year, whereas most species roses will bloom only once. Pruning roses can be a daunting task with all the thorns, but it's not as complicated as it initially seems. The way you prune will depend on if you want a shaped rose bush or an open one. In shaped rose bushes, you might need to leave in some non-productive branches for the benefit of the overall structure. In open rose bushes, you remove all of the dead wood, leaving in only productive branches. You can tell a productive branch from a non-productive one by the color. Productive will still be reddish green, while non-productive will be gray or white. In order to have a good shape, some productive branches might also need to be pruned. You will want to take these branches back to the nearest bud to the size you want in order to allow for flowering on that specific branch. Deadheading is the act of removing old flowers on a shrub to encourage repeated blooming. 
Not all rose bushes will bloom more than once during the year. The way that you can tell if your rose bush will bloom multiple times is to look at the fruits. The fruits of rose bushes are called rose hips, and these will grow at the base of pollinated flowers after the petal drop. If you have a multiple bloom rose bush, they will not produce rose hips, or produce rose hips that are very small. Once the petals drop, a dried up flower head remains. These detract from the attractiveness of the shrub and should be cut off to allow new blooms to take their place. If your bush produces rose hips, the fruits will create visual interest and are edible, being most often used in teas. Just watch out for the seeds. One disease that is making the rounds is called Rose Rosette. This is a virus spread by soil-borne mites and pruning equipment. The disease manifests as many smaller, insubstantial thorns at the top of the rose bush, new red growth that never greens up, and witches brooming which leads to the eventual decline and death of the shrub. There is no cure for the virus, so prevention is the best way you can keep your rose bushes healthy. If your rose bush does have rose rosette, pruning equipment can transfer the virus from diseased shrubs to healthy shrubs. It's important to sanitize pruning equipment with something like rubbing alcohol before moving from one bush to another in order to keep your healthy shrubs uninfected. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.